0: A few weeks ago, I asked you guys to send in suggestions for sermon topics for the series that we're going to begin this morning, and many of you did. I'm really grateful for all of the suggestions that came in. I think I responded to everyone who submitted a question, but if I didn't, please forgive me. There were quite a few that came through, and all of the suggestions were, were fantastic. As I sorted through them all, I tried to weigh which suggestion best fit the unique moment in which we're all living right now. I think that one of the things that has been most challenging for many people about this pandemic has been not only the sense of isolation that I think a lot of us have felt, but a sense of emptiness too. One columnist put it this way. She said, in this age of angst and isolation, so many people are pondering, what's it all about? When we can't hug our friends, visit our grandparents, go to church, watch a basketball game, see a play, listen to live music, or even go to school, when all of when all of the things she asks that we do to find meaning in life outside of work are gone, when for so many work itself is gone, and there's no notion of when, if ever, things will ever go back to normal, what really matters? How do we find meaning and purpose? in this new uncertainty. And that's it, isn't it? When life is stripped down to its bare minimum, when I can't distract myself with anything or anyone else, and it's just me, I'm forced to wrestle with some of the ultimate questions of life that I have always needed to wrestle with, but I've been able to avoid until now. And so as you can see on the screen, as I thought through the suggestions that came in, the one that seemed to best fit our unique moment was a suggestion that had to do with the questions that Jesus asks the people in the gospel accounts of His life. And so for the next four weeks, we're going to be examining four questions that Jesus asked people that He encountered. Now, you need to know that He asked a lot more than four questions, but the four that we're going to look at, I I think, cut Across every generation, every stage of life, every level of spiritual maturity, and seem to me to be incredibly relevant to the unique historical moment in which we live. The first question that we're going to take a look at is found in the Gospel of John. So if you have a Bible near you this morning, uh, find uh, the Gospel of John and uh, find John chapter 1. John chapter 1. And I think you're gonna find with these questions that Jesus asks something very unique. I think you're gonna find that these questions have a way of just sticking in your mind. I don't know if you've ever had, I don't know if you've ever had like a, a song, let's say, that gets stuck in your head and you can't get it out and it's on an endless loop and then, you know, maybe you get it out of your mind, but, you know, over time, it still pops up in weird places in random no- moments. Like, like here's one that pops into my mind randomly sometimes. <laughs> plop, plop, fizz, fizz. Oh, what a relief it is. Well, that's a, that's, a, that's a jingle from a commercial for Alka-Seltzer that has been stuck in my mind since the 1960s. Wait a minute, it can't be the 1960s because I'm not that old. So it had to be like the 80s or the 90s that I heard it first. But it's been, you get the point. It's been stuck in my mind for a long time. Here's another one that's been stuck in my head for a while. Who let the dogs out? Who, 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 who? That's another one I couldn't get out of my mind uh, for the longest time. One, time. one time I was praying in a church service. A lot of people. And I said, I said in the prayer, I said, Oh, Lord, I'm just asking. And then out of nowhere, this popped into my mind. Fortunately, I didn't say it. But, but here's what popped into my, my, in my mind. I said, Oh, Lord, I'm just asking. And what came in was, I want my baby back, baby back, baby back. I want my baby back, baby back, baby back. Which, as you probably know, was one of Chili's ads for ribs. You you know what I'm talking about, probably. You've had these kinds of things happen where a song gets stuck in your mind and it just stays on a loop. I think you're going to find with these questions that Jesus asks, I think you're going to find that they seem really very simple on the surface, but they have a way of burrowing like deep into your mind, and they will pop into your consciousness at some of the most random moments. Like maybe, maybe it's during a Zoom meeting with work, or maybe it's while you're watching a Netflix movie, something one of the characters in the movie says. Maybe it's, maybe it's late at night when you turn off the lights and lay your head down on the pillow. These questions have a way of just sticking with you and surfacing when you least expect them. And let me, let me just show you what I mean. I want to start reading. Let's start reading at verse 35 of John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 35. We're going to see the first question that Jesus asks that I want to look at this week. Verse 35, John chapter 1. says, The next day... John was there again with two of his disciples. Now, let me just jump in real quickly because I think this can be just a little bit confusing. The guy who writes this gospel uh, is named John, but the John that he's referring to here is John the Baptist. John the Baptist's ministry was intended to prepare people uh, for the coming of Jesus. So that's who he's re- referring to. So, he says, he says, the next day, John, John the Baptist, was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. And then when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following, and he asked, What do you want? There's there's the question, what do you want? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Verse 39, Come, Jesus replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying and they spent that day with Him. It was about uh, four in the afternoon. What do you want? What do you want? That's the question that Jesus asks these two men. Now, we know from the following verses that one of these, uh, one of these men was a man who would become one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew. And then I think because this, uh, this gospel is written uh, by, John, I think, by John, I think that we can safely assume that the other of these two men was John, who would also become one of Jesus' disciples. And Jesus asks them, what do you want? What do you want? better translation of the actual Greek construction of the question would be, what are you seeking? What are you, what are you looking for? Depending upon the background that you're coming from, you might be tempted to read Jesus' question with a gruff voice. What do you want? Like Jesus is put out with these men. But we know from the larger context of this passage, that's not Jesus' nature. He's not put out at all. Still, this seems like an odd opening gambit to the relationship that Jesus is going to have with these men. I think if we could just I think if we could just freeze the frame before Jesus says anything to them, we might have thought that He would ask, like in a very formal King James Version, Morgan Freeman sounding voice, whom seekest thou? But that's not the question He asks. He doesn't ask, who do you want? He asks, what do you want? It's a perfect example of the way that Jesus can ask a question that on the one hand seems so simple that it comes in under the radar, but it's actually so profound that it burrows deeply into your mind. Let me me show you how this works. This question, what do you want, on the one hand, it comes in under our radar. And I use that expression, under our radar, intentionally because the Bible tells us that by Nature. We all have a very sophisticated defense system that is always on high alert, scanning the horizon of our lives for anything that might cause us to consider the reality of the existence of God. The first chapter of the book of Romans, for instance, is the most clear about this in that it says that we suppress, that's the word, we suppress the truth of the existence of God even though that truth is evident all around us, meaning that we we default. Uh, we default. Uh, we want to deny that truth. We want to keep it at bay. We deflect it from our minds. We suppress it. We, we keep it down. We, uh, we turn on the TV when we begin to think something like that, or, or we go to dinner with friends, or we, we surf the web, or we buy stuff online. We, we concern our things ourselves with the immediate things of life rather than the eternal. We We either avoid the tough questions of life, or if we do consider the big questions of life, we suppress them by choosing carefully to read only those philosophers or religious leaders who confirm our biases, all the while studiously avoiding what the Bible has to say about the existence of God and the true condition of man. So, had Jesus asked this question, because we've got this very sophisticated defense system, had Jesus asked the question, Whom do you want? or Whom do you seek? I suspect that the disciples' radar, and certainly your radar, my radar, uh, would have immediately alerted that human defense system with sirens and flashing warning lights bang, 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 warning, 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 stay away. This is a spiritual question. Do not answer. And so instead of asking them, who do you want, he asks them, what do you want? Which on the surface, it's not a question that's really threatening at all. But I want you to notice how that question burrowed into John's mind. And here's here's what I mean. Experts on the New Testament believe that John wrote this gospel about 30 years after Jesus' death. So think about that for a moment. 30 plus years after Jesus' death, after Jesus asked this question of John and Andrew, what do you want? 30 years later, it's still on John's mind. That little question, it has burrowed that deeply into his mind. Over three decades later, he still remembers that little question, why? Because as John looks back over his life, he, he realizes that Jesus' simple, seemingly superficial question that came in under his sophisticated uh, defense system, John realizes that that question exploded into something far more meaningful, and it prompted massive transformation in his life. And, and let, me, let me just show you. The genius of this question is that it creates an awareness, I think, on three different levels of self-awareness. First, at the most immediate level of self-awareness, John and Andrew respond to Jesus' question simply with an immediate want. Like they interpret the question as, as just a very simple question. What do you want? Like, like, what do you want right now? And you can see that that's how John and Andrew interpret the question because they answer with the most immediate pressing question on their mind. We just want to know, where are you staying? Like, like do you have, a, do you have an Airbnb uh, around here somewhere? Are you in a garage apartment uh, or what, Jesus? Now, look, I'm going to argue that as John reflects back over this question 30 years later, he probably would like a do-over on, the, on their, on their uh, answer or on their question that they asked Jesus. Here, these two guys are standing in the presence of the creator and sustainer of the universe and all they want to know is, where, where, where are you staying? But notice Jesus doesn't scold them for that. Like he takes them seriously, even at this very immediate, kind of most fundamental level of self awareness. And he says to them, he says to them, we'll look at what the text says. He says, he says, come and see. Come come and see. He's patient with them. He doesn't demand that they ask him something more profound. Or that they believe in him instantly in that moment. He meets them right where they are. Aware of only the most immediate superficial level of their their desire. Where are you staying? I think it's encouraging that Jesus accepts that very immediate level of self-awareness. Because we, we never stop being aware of our immediate wants. Do no matter where you are in life, no matter how spiritually mature you are or aren't, the things that you want are usually at the very top of your mind. And even though they may change over time, we're always acutely aware of them, and it's encouraging to know that Jesus doesn't disregard those, that He doesn't make fun of them, that He doesn't scold them for asking that kind of question or for, for responding with just their immediate wants. In my early 20s, if you would have asked me what I want, I probably would have said, well, I want a meaningful, rewarding career. In my late 20s, I would have said, I want a, I want a wife. And then when I got engaged, I would have said, I want Jesus not to return until after my wedding night. And I'm just, being, I'm just being very honest with you about that. I would have said, like, please, please, please don't come back, Jesus, until after that night. In my 30s, I would have said, I want children, I want a house. There were times later that I would have said I want my children off my payroll. Uh, today I might say I want a cure for the coronavirus. Uh, I want things to return back to normal. I know, yes, I want grandchildren so Jesus get to work on my kids. But you see, that's the genius of Jesus' question. He asks them something that allows them to answer with the most basic level of self-awareness and he doesn't scold them for their answer at all. But, but I want you to watch what happens next. They go with him, they spend some time with him, they see his place, where he's staying, but something changes during the period of time that they're with Jesus. They went in just looking for some basic information about where he was staying, and they came out. Well, watch this, verse verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is, the Christ. And he brought him, Simon Peter, to Jesus. This very simple question, what do you want, suddenly awakened in them a deeper level of self-awareness. I'll call it the existential level of self-awareness. It creates in them an awareness of an existential want. Like their, their response has moved from the most basic level of self-awareness of their immediate wants and needs to a recognition that there's something deeper, more meaningful that they were really looking for when they went in there that day. A, a, a Messiah. And that's the question I think many people today find them Asking. Perhaps it's even why some of you tuned into this uh, today. It's what the columnist I mentioned a few moments ago was getting at. When everything else is stripped away, what is it that will satisfy the deepest longings of my soul that will give meaning to my existence, whether I'm sitting in my C level suite at work or I'm Sheltering in place alone in my apartment. When I'm in my 20s and full of energy and optimism and the future is still out in front of me. Or when I'm in my 80s and I'm tired and my body and memory is failing. And at least from an earthly perspective, there's not much future left. What will give my life real, genuine meaning? It's a deeper level of self-awareness you see. It's a question about ultimate meaning and purpose in life. What do I really, what do I really want? Sort of, uh, the modern answer to that question has been: Well, there's nothing deeper than the immediate. There's no such thing as an ultimate meaning to life. Science has shown us that there's nothing beyond the material. That we're nothing more than the product of randomly colliding atoms. We're merely chemical processes. In other circumstances, I might take the time to talk about some of the massive logical inconsistencies of that argument, like why, for example, if there's nothing more ultimate, why has the demand for counselors and therapists and medications to treat treat depression and anxiety Why have there been so many books written about shame and guilt and emptiness and unhappiness? Why is is the demand for those kinds of things increased over the last 50 years if we really believe in scientific naturalism that there's nothing more ultimate than matter? I could spend a lot of time talking about that. I don't think I need to spend much time on that today. Because I think, you see, I think that's a belief. I think scientific naturalism is a belief that's easier to maintain when there are more things to distract you, and when there's a greater sense of control over life. I think it's a lot more difficult to maintain that belief when the normal distractions of life have been stripped away, when venturing outside means wearing a mask, when the death tolls are rising every day, when businesses are closing and jobs are being lost and you feel out of control. Silence, the isolation, the emptiness... Prompts these kinds of existential questions. Like, what am I missing? What do I really want? Now here's the danger. What often happens is that people come to this kind of a place where they realize that there's something deeper that they long for. They reject the secular ideal that matter is all there is and that science and reason alone can give us meaning in life, but they don't want to go back to what they have always understood as the oppressive, creativity-stifling, smug moralism of the past. That's how they understand Christianity, old, traditional, moralistic religion. And so they often land in a kind of new spirituality that is very ambiguous and impersonal. You hear it often when you hear people say things like, I think the universe is telling me something, or I think that the universe blessed me. Something. What I want you to see here is that Jesus offers something that is neither new spirituality, it's not impersonal ambiguous, nor is it old traditional religion. It's neither a sort of vague and general sense of spiritual well-being, nor is it a new set of rules He offers these disciples, He offers them instead an encounter with a concrete living person. And that moves them to a new level of self-awareness, a new level of want, a new recognition of what they were really looking for than perhaps they were aware of when they went with Jesus to begin with. They wanted wasn't rules and traditions. They had plenty of that in their day. They wanted a relationship with a personal, living Messiah. There's still this this other level of self-awareness that Jesus' question moves them to. You know, they started out at the immediate level, here's what we want right now. And they moved to this sense of, you know, this existential level of self-awareness I think I want something more than just my immediate wants, something to give me meaning, but there's this other level. And I think it's this level that John has in mind as he writes this story 30 years later. And I'm going to call this I'm going to call this the transformational level of self-awareness. In other words, it created in them an awareness of a desire to be transformed. And here's what I mean. If you study the Gospels, you'll find that uh, all of Jesus' disciples wanted Jesus to be a conquering Messiah who would liberate Israel. And consequently, if He did that, that would mean that they are personally attached to a rising star. They've got to hold a Superman's cape, you know. They're going to be be somebody. They're going to power. They're going to have have wealth. There's even a hysterical scene later in the the Gospels in which the disciples are are arguing over who's going to have the highest office in Jesus' administration. They were with Jesus throughout His life. They followed Him because of what they thought they wanted Him to do for them. They, They wanted Him to make them great through his military power and might. They wanted him to give them power and prosperity. But what they got, ultimately, was a Messiah who would do something much, much greater. And he would do it not through stunning military victory, but through what would seem to them at the time to be a soul-crushing defeat, crucified on a Roman cross as a common criminal. And for three days after his death on the cross... The disciples had to face the fact that their dreams had been crushed. And the question was, what now? John looks back three days, three decades, I should say, three decades later on this question, what do you want? And he realizes that Jesus knew this selfishness about John and the other disciples all along, that he knew they were with him only for what he could do for them. But John looks back on this and, and he realizes something profound has happened to him. Through the power of Christ's love demonstrated most clearly in his sacrificial death on the cross, Jesus has given something to John that John never knew he wanted to begin with, and that is radical transformation. From the kind of person who was with Jesus for what he could get from Jesus, he's been transformed into the kind of person who would respond to Jesus' question three decades later, knowing everything that he knows three decades later. He would respond to Jesus' question, what do you want, with a very different answer as he writes this gospel. He would say to Jesus' question, what do you want? He would say. He would respond. I want what you want, Jesus. I want what you want. In another place in time, another church that I pastored, I would often begin sermons and then end the, the service with this saying, Christ died for me to give His life to me, to live His life through me. And you see, that's the life that you long for. That's what it means to be human, to be the kind of person who would, ask, who would answer Jesus' question, what do you want? In the same way that He answered in the Garden of Gethsemane when He prayed, Take this cup from me, but not my will be done, your will be done. I want, what, I want what you want. That's what it means to be human. That's what it means to be alive. That's the longing of the human heart. That's what you want. There's this stunning moment in the, later in the New Testament when the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says this, he says this thing that just seems impossible. He says, "For me to live is Christ." In other words, everything that Christ is, everything that Christ wants, every everything that Christ wills—that's what I want to live. I, I want—I want to live His life. For me to live is Christ, and then he says, "And to die is gain." That's a profound transformation. And as John looks back over the course of his life and over the last over three decades, he looks back at this question and he realizes this unbelievable transformation that has happened to him through the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ. And he's changed from this man who's only with Jesus for what Jesus can do for him into a man who asks, who says, Jesus, I want whatever you want. You know, I I can imagine there are people that are watching this and listening to this that are just, maybe this is, maybe they're just amazed that Jesus would even ask, what do you want? And, And maybe that all that comes to your mind right now are just like the immediate things that you want. Jesus doesn't take that lightly. He doesn't scoff at that. He doesn't ridicule that. But the intent of the question is to move you to another level, a level that asks, what is it that I really want down deep in my soul? It's a question that I think many people are asking today, maybe some of you. But ultimately, Jesus asks the question because He wants you to understand that what you really want is to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the longing of the human soul. Would you bow with me for prayer? Our Lord Jesus Christ... We want to be the kind of people who would say, we want what you want. We want to be the kind of people who would say that for us to live as Christ, to die is gain. We want transformation. We want to be changed into your image. Lord, would you speak to us powerfully this morning you know, through the things that I'm, I can't articulate, but only your spirit can do, would you speak to us powerfully in the very depths of our souls? and Would you remind us that that's really what we want, is to be transformed into your image, to do your will, whatever it is that you would ask. Or would you make us aware of that? And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask this.